Coping 19, brought to you by CDC and the Ad Council. If you're feeling increasingly lonely right now, you're not alone. It's totally normal. Even though we may not be able to get together in person, connecting virtually with friends and family still gives you a chance to interact with people and may help raise your spirits. Join a virtual book club, set up group text chats, or online video coffee breaks with coworkers. Find more self-care and coping tips at coping-19.org. The McNichols Arena, you know, 16 years later, I'll tell you folks, it was a it was should have been a lot of fun. It was, hey, I, I should have had paradise here. I was the highest paid coach in the National Hockey League. I had great fans. Uh, we had a great building. Everything's rolling along. Should have been paradise, eh? No, nah, turned into a nightmare. The uh, very first exhibition game we had, the GM said I did a poor job. And folks, it went all downhill from there. I'll tell you, folks, one of my big problems was Hardy Astrum, the Swedish goaltender. I call him the Swedish sieve. His only problem as a goaltender was pucks. Now, I've told you many times about the breakout play that I first got here, our first practice, that the breakout plays, you get the pucks in center ice, coach, flip him in on the goalie, he catches them down and out. First two shots, I score. I know I'm in deep trouble. I don't have Jerry Cheevers anymore. I go home that night and I say to Rose, get the bags packed, Rose, we're in trouble again. Yeah, we had a great young defenseman here, all-star, his name was Barry Beck. He wanted more dough, and uh, naturally they wouldn't give him any more dough, so they make a trade with the Rangers. We get a bunch of guys with Mike McEwen. Now, my problems really start now. Mike was one of those guys that the owners, Arthur Imperatore, loved, and Armand Pohan, his stepson loved. They lived in New Jersey. Got 20 goals there, but he'd stay on for two, two minutes, two half, three minutes sometime. I tell him, you stay on 30 seconds and off like the rest of the guys. Needless to say, we're playing Detroit. He coughs up the puck after a two-minute shift. He comes over here. I get him. I thought I told you to come off. He says, yeah, so what? I grab him by the throat, strangle him like that. I know I'm fired after this. Reporter asked me after the game, Grapes, do you regret uh, choking Mike McEwen? I said, the only thing I regret, I didn't choke him harder. Well, folks, you think they got great fans now? We had great fans back then. I remember one game, 3-0. We beat Pittsburgh. We had 12,005. Worst snowstorm of the year. And as you watch me walk off here, it's the last time I ever coached in the National Hockey League. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, let's get this show on the road, shall we? It's your pal, Tim Hanlon. And once again, you have stumbled across good seats still available. Yeah, it's our weekly little podcast journey into what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for finding us, however you've done so. Thank you for subscribing to us if you've done so. Thank you for sharing this uh, little uh, excursion that we're on each and every week uh, with your friends and uh, your colleagues. We appreciate it. And um, hopefully we will uh, distract you just a little bit from uh, this week's version of craziness out there in the big bad world. We know how uh, daunting and uh, overbearing all of this has been. Uh, it just never seems to end. It's just a different uh, a different flavor of it each week, it seems. But um, let us uh, take you away from that for a little while, at least, uh, and uh, regale you with uh, some fun stories from this week's spin of the dial. And we land on 
the Colorado Rockies. No, 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 not the Major League Baseball team that currently exists and has its own stories to tell for sure. No, we're going to get into the NHL hockey version of said Colorado Rockies. The late 70s, early 80s is when we're going back. And our pal, our new pal, Terry Fry, longtime sports columnist and writer and beat reporter uh, in Denver, the Denver Post in, in particular, but lots of other places too. And he, a um, prodigious book writer as well uh, in the realm of sports and then some, is our excuse to go back into the six-year journey uh, of this team uh, that uh, skated through the old McNichols Sports Arena from 76 through 1982, six seasons of, I don't know, I wouldn't call it, uh, I don't know if they were truly woeful, but that moribund may be a good word, uh, certainly not boring by any stretch. Uh, they made the playoffs one year, uh, barely squeaking in in 77-78, uh, being quickly dispatched by the Flyers uh, in the preliminary round back when the Smythe division was... Um, uh, perhaps uh, this year's uh, uh, equivalent of the uh, NFC East uh, in uh, in the NFL this year. Nobody seemed to want to, uh, to make the playoffs, but uh, but the Colorado Rockies, a very interesting story. Before they even got to town, certainly while they were in Denver, and um, still arguably, as we'll get into a conversation with Terry, uh, still, you know, uh, remembered, and, and we sort of question as to where those memories uh, might legitimately uh, reside. A, a, a fun-filled uh, discussion, uh, lots of great memories, certainly a lot of characters, including one Don Cherry, as you heard at the outset there, with his uh, maybe not entirely accurate memories of uh, his one year, 7980. Uh, sorry, yes, yeah, 7980. Yes, that was the season uh, that uh, Don Cherry was uh, uh, brought in to kind of you know rejuvenate the team and, and maybe allay some fears. Uh, that never seemed to go away, by the way, uh, of the team potentially leaving Denver and going yet to another uh, uh, location. Uh, they themselves, the Rockies, of course, uh, having been a, a wobbly franchise uh, for two years before they even got into town in Kansas City. We've talked about that. The Kansas City Scouts, they were, uh, with their old pal Troy Treasure. That's an episode uh, I highly encourage you to um, go back into our archives and check out. You can find all of our episodes at GoodSeatStillAvailable.com, of course, uh, or just subscribe to the uh, to the stream, to the podcast, to the uh, the UR, uh, the uh, RSS feed, whatever it is. However, you get it, uh, you'll find that episode uh, with Troy. Uh, that could be a good backgrounder if uh, you want to uh, get that out of your system first before coming back to this one. Uh, but I assure you that um, once they were in Denver, uh, there were uh, just about every season it seems. Uh, we're rumored to be on the uh, on the go again, uh, not to be long for Denver. They lasted six seasons. I think many would argue, uh, surprisingly, that they did stick around for that length of period of time because uh, they went through, God, it seems just as many coaches, uh, almost, th I think, three or maybe four owners, if you really uh, sort of go into the lineage. Um, uh, it was never a sure thing for sure. But make no mistake, this team was uh, interesting. They were fun to watch. Uh, certainly full of stories, and uh, and Terry has brought uh, a bunch of them to us uh, this week, and and we you know we reached out to him uh, because we were introduced to um, one of his uh, many great books, uh, and we'll get into some of the uh, other ones uh, at, in the back roll of the, of the show. Uh, you can see all of them, by the way, at terryfry.com, T-E-R-R-Y, 
F-R-E-I, all one word, terryfry.com. Uh, the book that uh, uh, the Rockies' memories are embedded in is a great one about uh, a lot of his uh, Denver sports writing exploits. It's called Playing Piano in a Brothel. Now, if that doesn't intrigue you, I don't know what title will. Uh, but um, in there is a great uh, chapter devoted to uh, the uh, story of the Colorado Rockies. And I did not know this until we reached out to Terry for this conversation, that this, the Colorado Rockies, was the first pro sports beat uh, assignment of his uh, career. Yeah, he was a young cub reporter uh, in Denver for the Post, I believe it was, if memory serves, uh, part of a competitive two newspaper um, uh, dynamic there uh, in uh, in Denver. And um, the uh, the story of the, the Rockies is uh, almost um, uh, parallel to uh, that of the young uh, budding sports writer uh, of Terry Fry. And it's a, it's a great way to uh, mutually uh, go back in time, the late 70s, early 80s, and remember and uh, sort of uh, marinate a bit about uh, this team uh, and where its legacy, if you can call it that, sort of lives today and uh, just the fun and interesting uh, times and, and, and stories that come out of that. Certainly, uh, Don Cherry's uh, uh, part of that story. Uh, we get into... Um, Oh, geez, a bunch of different uh, 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 names of the past. Wilf uh, Paymont, for example, uh, legendary, uh, I guess, uh, Rocky, if you can call him that. Lanny McDonald, uh, current Hockey Hall of Famer, uh, was part of this uh, story. And even uh, current uh, Panthers coach Joel Quenville, you uh, Chicago Blackhawks fans, of course, remember him as the three-time head coach champion of the uh, Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, is part of the story, as well as many, many others. Uh, we get into uh, just a, an amazing array, and it's a, a wonderful uh, excuse to get into the story of the Colorado hockey, Rockies, Rocky hockey, shall we call it, uh, in our conversation this week with Terry Fry, coming up in just a few moments' time. You will enjoy it, I guarantee. Uh, let's uh, find a great sponsor this week uh, that marries up with the uh, the subject at hand, and I can't think, frankly, of a better one this week than 503 Sports. Yeah, it's our pal Dustin Alameda's fine site and company out in Portland, Oregon. Beautiful Portland, Oregon, for that matter. 503 Sports, 503-sports.com. It's the king of throwbacks. He and they consider themselves, and rightly so, lots of great stuff. Shirts and caps and even handcrafted uh, jerseys uh, made to perfection. Uh, with lots of great detail. And uh, I call those jerseys out in particular because if uh, you remember the Colorado Rockies, were a fan of said franchise, or want to become uh, because of this episode and our conversation with Terry coming up, uh, you could uh, do worse than to go to 503-sports.com and use, of course, the promo code SEATS for 10% off all of your purchases, in particular, two great Colorado Rockies hockey jerseys. Uh, these are the authentic uh, uh, handcrafted uh, custom jerseys. You can get your name and number or any name and number on the back of them if you'd like. Uh, and there are two versions of them. There's the um, blue uh, with yellow and red trim featuring that uh, memorable Colorado Rockies original logo uh, with a bit of the Colorado flag and uh, uh, the sort of a pattern there of, of a Rocky Mountain uh, in the background, but also uh, what Dustin calls a remix version uh, of the uh, of the jersey, where 
Uh, it's in uh, sort of a, a burnt red uh, that sort of highlights and uh, 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 parallels the uh, the C, the letter C in that in that logo in that Colorado State flag with uh, uh, yellow and blue trim. Both of them are just simply gorgeous. Uh, they're uh, they're uh, made with uh, accuracy from what those old jerseys used to look like, uh, and they're just an amazing, um, uh, well-crafted uh, way of remembering our topic this week, the Colorado Rockies. Just one or two of the many uh, great items that you're going to find at 503 Sports. Again, that's 503-sports.com. Again, the king of throwbacks. Make sure that you uh, use the promo code SEATS and enjoy, courtesy of us and Dustin, 10% off all of your purchases when you come early and often at 503 Sports. Again, 503-sports.com, promo code SEATS. Thank you to Dustin uh, for his continued sponsorship of the show. We appreciate it. And we, of course, appreciate you for coming back each and every week to listen to our our fun shenanigans. Uh, and this week, our conversation with Terry Fry, the uh, longtime and legendary sports writer in and around Denver. Uh, and we're going to use uh, his uh, writings and his experiences as our excuse to get into his first beat reporting job. Let's go back and remember the Colorado Rockies. As always, please enjoy. Well, I was raised in Eugene, Oregon, uh, where my dad was on the football staff at the University of Oregon for 17 years. And he had been a World War II veteran who had played at the University of Wisconsin in 1942, 46, and 47. And in that era, nobody had the Nobody had the sense to ask, actually ask him what he was doing in the three-year interim there between his sophomore and junior season at Wisconsin. Well, well, he had been a P-38 fighter pilot in the Pacific. And after the, after playing two more years at Wisconsin, he went out to Portland, Oregon to be a high school football coach and, and moved from there down to uh, eventually down to Eugene, where he was on Len Casanova's staff at the University of Oregon for a lot of years and then became head coach in 1967. So I was raised kind of on the other side of the boundary, looking at the media, covering my father and being a very protective, very loyal son. And so I had kind of a cynical view of the media, but I had knee problems myself. And, and one year when I was not playing football at South Eugene high school and was getting ready for baseball, I started writing for as a class assignment, started writing for the school paper. And uh, it was kind of an interesting situation because my father had been a World War II, much decorated World War II pilot. And I was writing my initial stories on campus unrest at the University of Oregon as kind of my beat. And uh, I covered originally, my first two stories were on the Vietnam veterans against the war. And I had no, no goal in mind of becoming a journalist, but I wrote those two stories about the Vietnam veterans against the war. The second one was about a hothead, former leader of the VVAW, who had come to Eugene to make a speech. And I went to the speech and talked to him after the speech, wrote the story. And I don't know whatever happened to that guy. His name was John Kerry. Wow. So I'm 16 years, I'm 16 years old writing a story about John Kerry. And my father's the head football coach at Oregon. And I'm writing these kind of firebrand articles uh, being opposed to the Vietnam War and writing about the VVAW. And my father took some grief for it, but it said, you know, he'd been flying over t flying over targets 
alone taking pictures in advance of the bombing runs when he was 21 years old. And he was not going to tell me what my political viewpoint could be, but it was also kind of uh, understood that I had the freedom uh, as within certain boundaries to, to write about and to express my own opinions. And so that's how I got started in journalism. And when my father went to the Denver Broncos, he went from being head coach at Oregon to be offensive line coach of the Denver Broncos with John Ralston. I moved to Denver when I was a junior in the middle of June, my junior year of high school. And I, uh, was going to Wheat Ridge high school. And I was all excited to move to the big city of Denver until he told me I was going to be a Wheat Ridge farmer. But I came to Denver and, uh, played baseball, was a pretty good baseball player, and uh, I saw things like my starting pitcher was Dave Logan, who's not a play-by-play voice of the Denver Broncos, a uh, very prominent high school football coach here in Denver, and I walked right into that situation, and I set, immediately set a state high school baseball record, career high school baseball record that is, I think, still still intact to this day. I set a record for most passed balls, because uh, <laughs> Dave, was, Dave was one of the three men who were drafted in all three professional sports and was a proficient pitcher and uh, threw the ball about 95 miles an hour. And I had a little trouble handling him. And uh, so I played baseball, Wee Ridge, uh, had another knee surgery. And then when I went to the university of Colorado, I worked part-time at the Rocky mountain news during college. Rocky mountain news was the tabloid morning paper, similar to the sun times there in Chicago. Sure. And, uh, Worked my way through college that way, enjoyed the sports writing, and I thought I was not going to get into it as a career, but I was offered a job at the Denver Post right out of college. And my goal, my thinking was I was going to become, uh, save some money, go to law school. Well, I got trapped into being a sports writer. I got uh, shoved into a corner because I was, I was good at it. I enjoyed it, and I was immediately, uh, very six months into my employment, was handled handed the the assignment of covering the Colorado Rockies in the National Hockey League. I was a major league beat writer at age 22. Very young, very energetic, very naive, uh, very open-eyed, and uh, and was thrown into that beat, and that was my first assignment. Wait, and, so, I'm sorry, so, uh, the, so the, the Rockies were actually your first sort of full-time pro sports beat then huh yeah i had covered i had covered high school sports for about six to nine months and then let's be perfectly blunt here that there was a certain element of the fact that the rockies had been in denver for one year and the sports editor covered him that first year and he didn't want to do it anymore so he needed somebody on his staff to cover it i think he posed the question to the staff in the staff meeting okay does anybody in here know the color of the blue line and I raised my hand, and he said, so, okay, you're covering the Colorado Rockies. That's kind of how I got my start. Why did he want out of that beat? Oh, because he needed to be an office administrator, and he, it was tough to be both sports editor and covering the hockey team. Well, all right, so what, what did you – let's just dive right in. What, what, did you, what did you walk into, or what did you think you were walking into with this team? And perhaps a little background, because and, you know, this is – you know, conversations like this aren't necessarily – uh, we don't we don't sort of necessarily get specific and granular about s- historical uh, points and, and and dates and stuff, but th- th- there there was a bit of a uh, a birthing process, I guess, about receiving this team a year prior, right? And they had played my, my they had played franchise and the WHA and all that stuff, right? They had played two seasons in Kansas City as the Kansas City Scouts as an underfinanced 
uh, ineptly financed, uh, bad ownership expansion team in Kansas City, played two years there and, and literally ran out of money. And the NHL did not do a very good job of vetting ownerships at that time. And so the team moved to Denver, which had had kind of a tryout. And hockey was not completely foreign to Denver. That's kind of a myth. There had been many, many years of minor league hockey franchises. The University of Denver is a prominent collegiate program and a stand in the WHA as the Denver Spurs. And uh, they had moved. There was the thinking that all you had to do is open the door and people would come and see hockey, and that was just not correct. And the Spurs, uh, the Spurs had originally hoped to be an NHL expansion franchise, but then also decided it was decided they'd go into the WHA. The ownership was a guy named I, Ivan Mullinex, and uh, this predates me covering the team. I was in college at the time, but uh, there were rumors that the WHA franchise, the Denver Spurs, were going to move to Ottawa in the middle of the year. And then the ownership and the coaching staff and everything else assured the players that, no, that's not true. We're at least going to finish out the year in Denver. And they went and played a game at Cincinnati. Ralph Backstrom, uh, who won multiple Stanley Cups with the Montreal Canadiens and ended up coaching at the University of Denver, told me the story. They were standing on the blue line for the national anthems, national anthem, and uh, in Cincinnati. And they had just been told, no, we're not moving to Canada. We're not moving to Canada. Don't worry about it. They're playing in Cincinnati, and uh, the PA system strikes up O Canada. And so the players kind of looked at each other and said, well, I guess uh, here in Cincinnati, they know we're moving to Ottawa, and we don't. So they ended up moving to Ottawa. That franchise folded. Uh, even the Ottawa Civics folded. And the, and the NHL moved into Denver with that Kansas City Scouts with Jack Vickers, well-known oil man who eventually became kind of the patriarch of the international golfer and was his best-known sporting accomplishment taking over ownership of the Rockies. And part of the problem was, uh, the name of the team was changed to the Rockies. And part of the problem was a certain naivete among ownership that would be a common thread throughout the life of the Colorado Rockies about what they were getting into. I mean, Jack Vickers was told, oh, yeah, the WHA failed, but you get really an NHL team in here, and we'll, we'll just sell it out, and it'll be easy. And he, He'd been sold a bill of goods, the, and the NHL brought in some management people or shoved in some management people on Jack Vickers that uh, had failed other places, but were cronies of league, league leadership and uh, did not do a very good job steering that ship. And so the Rockies came in to, for a six year run in Denver after being an ineptly run expansion franchise in Kansas city. And I've always maintained, always maintained that they would have been better off being an expansion team with a coherent sense of leadership. And you set a course and stick to it. Uh, instead, for the six-year course of the Rockies, they were starting over, stopping, starting over, making panic trades, uh, changing ownerships, doing all of that, and, and so that was the kind of the uh, that kind of set the table for what happened in those six years in Denver. Yeah. So uh, a couple of things in there. So n- number one is is the um, uh, is the, the the bit about expansion, right? Because I think, if I'm not mistaken, Melano uh, and the Spurs were kind of hoping that they would originally get. I guess an expansion franchise or even uh, another relocated team, even prior to the scouts being part of the mix of either from uh, the golden seals or even, I think even the Pittsburgh uh, penguins at that time. Yeah. There was a lot of talk about that. And they're there. They originally had been thinking when they built the arena. And part of the problem was there was also the arena was kind of built for the 1976 winter Olympics, which were not held because of a vote. Uh, it, it went to a vote of the public and it was turned down. And uh, had to back out of the commitment to host the 1976 Winter Olympics 
in the uh, along the in the mountains and in Denver. And so the the, the arena was kind of built for a per, for for uh, for something that never got held because and it was the right decision. You saw what happened in 1976 at Montreal with the Summer Olympics. It you know they they were paying that for years and years and years. And until Peter Uberoth in Los Angeles hit on the formula of, of essentially uh, turning the Olympics into a sponsor's haven and, and raising money that way, uh, you were going to lose money in the Olympics. And, and the environmental effects would have been disastrous at that time, too. So it was the right decision, and that's why the arena was built. But uh, they didn't have a WHA franchise put into it and ended up with the Rockies and the Nuggets playing in McNichol Sports Arena. So that's interesting. I, so, but then also, uh, McNichols uh, itself seems like it was a hastener, perhaps, of the Spurs and the WHA. Uh, just the fact that it was available, it was online, so to speak, uh, and uh, something new, right? Versus the Denver Coliseum. Yeah, it was, it was the generation. Aging. It was of the generation of uh, the Riverfront Coliseum in Cincinnati, it was and uh, Reunion Arena and. Dallas and uh, a lot of other places where they were built really before the private box enterprise. Yeah, uh, Spectrum was maybe part of the Philly uh, a bit too, uh, perhaps uh, the yeah. National Coliseum a bit too. So, so McNichols, yeah, very much. They all look alike, somewhat alike, and uh, they were a little too far ahead of their time in terms of being built a little too soon, a little before you figured out how you can maximize revenue. So they were out of date from the, virtually the instant they were opened. In Winnicott's Arena, you had a hard time getting through the concourse hallways, and it just wasn't a very amenable atmosphere for hockey or basketball or anything else. But it did give them a chance to host the NHL, uh, to host an NHL team. Well, all right, give me a sense then. Obviously, you're you're not covering this until about a year into their life in in Denver. But um, from from general recollection in the in in the in the, the sports desk in the newsroom. What what was sort of the <laughs> what what would you sort of uh, consider sort of the reception of this uh, futile uh, two year Kansas City reject uh, becoming a rebirthed now NHL franchise? So was it was it just love at first sight in that first year, or, or like give me give me a oh, sense no. of sort of the what that 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 relationship was between the sports fans uh, in Denver and this uh, let's call it fledgling NHL club relocating holding, holding it. At- holding it at arm's length with a sense of cynicism about, uh, and you have to understand at the time Denver was kind of a, an outpost with an inferiority complex. It was before the, uh, before the Denver Broncos went to the, it was right as the Denver Broncos went to the Super Bowl for the first time in that 1977 season. And there were, there was no major league baseball, uh, there had. And so it was still kind of a fledgling sports market within with that inferiority complex, you know, us against the world, which is, so tiresome even today, many, many years later, but it was pretty preeminent in, in the Denver market at the time. And, and there is no question the hockey team, the NHL team at that time was far down the hierarchy of importance uh, on the scale there. I mean, uh, I was covering it. I mean, I'm 22 years old. That threw, threw me onto the beat. And I, it was great, 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 great training ground. And I wouldn't trade it for the world. Very much enjoyed it. Uh, came to love the sport and covered for many, many years. And, and, but at that time, they were kind of holding it at arm's length, and it didn't draw real well. I don't remember the exact attendance was, but one of the misconceptions is the NHL sold out everywhere all the time, and that that simply was not true, as I saw in my travels 
through the league, but there was a definite attendance problem. Jack Vickers discovered that it was not the gold mine he was told it was going to be. Uh, and at one point, I remember, this is getting a little ahead of the story, I remember uh, when when the ownership decided they had to raise the, the price of the best seat in the house. And it just it was no longer viable or feasible to continue to charge these ticket prices. So they raised the top ticket price to $14. That was the top ticket price. And you would have thought that uh, uh, there had been a revolution in the empire or something having to go all the way up to $14 for an NHL hockey ticket. And so the, it was held at arm's length. There, there was a lot of kind of hopeful at- atmosphere about if they could just do it right, if they could actually be patient instead of making panic deals all the time, that this may be a way to uh, get Denver into the sports spotlight with, with hockey as a primary arm of it, but it didn't happen. Uh, there were many, many entertaining moments over the years we can get into, but I, I will say that it never quite, uh, there were moments of false starts, moments of promise, moments of being hopeful about it, getting digging in, but it never happened. Well, given that shaky start, what, what, um, I, I'm guessing, so why the price raise then? I, I, I My understanding is, I guess. Oh, I think it, it was later. That was later when the okay. territory ownership but they, had, they also had a raise poor- on their but they also had a pretty poor lease, though, at McNichols, right? So that maybe wasn't necessarily unexpected. Yeah, yeah what happened was uh, in the second season, 1977-78, uh, Vickers, it was Vickers' second year of ownership. He complained about the uh, the lease on McNichols Arena and said, you know, we're not drawing. We're having trouble gaining ground here. We need some help from this city. Our lease is terrible. And he, the problem was... The Rockies made the playoffs in 1978. 12 of the 17 NHL teams did make the playoffs, and they played the Flyers in a two-out-of-three first round. And there was a little bit of feeling of, hey, that we're getting there, we're getting there. I remember Bobby Clark saying, hey, this is a pretty good young team. Uh, they, they need to be patient here in Denver. It's going to work. And But Zach Vickers went on television between periods of one, the home playoff game and said, if we don't get a better lease, we're going to have to leave or I'm going to have to sell. And so I really shot all the momentum of the team actually making the playoffs. Uh, they they were nineteen forty and twenty one and made the playoffs. Yeah, we had to put this uh, quick quick uh, parenthetical. We had to put that in perspective, right? This is yeah, they, yeah. this was a, a they squeaked by. It's only because the each division got to the top two teams, and, that, and then the Smite division that year was. Um, uh, mediocre, I guess at best, but uh, still a glint <laughs> of a glint of hope that yeah, obviously didn't yeah, yeah. much further than that. Yeah, I still call the NFL East this year, uh, the NFC East this year, the Smythe Division, which gives you an idea good analogy. how good the Smythe Division is. And so, so uh, it was a terrible division, and, and the Rockies sneaked in the playoffs. Played pretty well, put a scare into the Flyers, but Vickers took all, all air out of the momentum that was being built. And I actually did, and he challenged me, and this is one of the better jobs. I will say I was very, very young not a hockey expert, still finding my way along, but I was a dogged reporter. I was really, really dogged reporter. And I did a survey of all the leases in the, in the NHL. And the problem is, as, as I'm sure you can understand, Tim, there, there were apples and oranges when you try to compare leases. And I pretty much concluded in a, in a huge, huge, huge story that uh, they were, they had a case for not, for not being treatly, treated fairly on the lease, but it wasn't really the dagger uh, to uh, completely block the potential of the franchise for 
getting getting over the hump in Denver. But Vickers ended up selling the team to Arthur Imperator instead of instead of putting his head down and trying to fight through that lease and move on from there. Now, how about the how about the relationship in that building uh, with the Nuggets? Right, the Nuggets obviously had a bit of a longer history from the ABA, from the ABA, right? The, the seventy six, mm-hmm. the, the the dawn of the, the the slam dunk contest and all that stuff, all star game. Well, what what um, yeah, what, what what was the where how how influential <laughs> were the Nuggets in this situation, if at all? And you know, I, I'm, I'm guessing there wasn't necessarily. a a great, great spirit of co-op, cooperation. Uh, back. Actually, actually, there was. There was a pretty convivial atmosphere between the teams in the arena because, uh, well, for one thing, the Nuggets, the Nuggets were run by Carl Shear, who was really a showman and understood uh, that kind of element of the, the business and being a basketball man. And they were a very entertaining team to be around. Uh, the Nuggets had a, a keg in their conference room that they would open at five o'clock and. Uh, the media would come in and it'd be like a media cocktail hour and with, with officials of the team and the Rockies people would come in too. And it was actually, it was actually pretty convivial, uh, almost friendly relationship between the two teams and, and the media, the overlap of the people who covered them and who were around them. And I do know at one point, uh, the Nuggets were very, very, very scared of the potential for the hockey franchise. At, at that time, there was a question whether, uh, there was enough money in Denver and enough uh, wherewithal in Denver to support both NHL and NBA. Remember, it wasn't completely common at that time for for uh, cities the size of Denver to have both NHL and NBA. And the Nuggets were kind of scared of the Rockies in that sense. If they ever got going, they, they may be a competition for season ticket revenue and, and uh, uh, other kinds of revenue, corporate revenue. And so, but uh, the relationship was actually pretty good. And at one time, now, uh, eventually, after the Imperator sold the franchise to Peter Gilbert, the Buffalo Cable um, entrepreneur and millionaire, former uh, uh, cable entrepreneur, he considered actually buying the Nuggets and uh, having both teams. But that, that was way ahead of its time, and he didn't do it. But those were the major possibilities. The Nuggets really didn't view the Rockies as serious, serious competitors, but they were afraid of what they might become. Interesting. Um, give me a sense of your, how you, like what was going through your head? You know, this is a pretty big assignment, if you will. This is, you know, one of the big four pro sports leagues. You're, you're, you're basically full-timing this now on the second season of this yes. team. Were you, were you intimidated? Were you... The, no. the looseness of the situation and or the arm's length relationship, I guess, of the fans with the team, did that kind of make it a little less spotlighty and a little easier maybe to kind of focus on the job at hand without worrying about pressure or any of that kind of yeah. stuff? What, what was going on? Yes, was- actually, yeah, actually, I have espoused that viewpoint many, many, many times in my career that one of the reasons it was a great proving ground for me was that there, it was not the most prominent beat on the paper. The uh, the Broncos were, of course, and uh even college football probably was considered ahead of the Rockies at that time. And I was allowed to kind of find my way my own way on the beat. And in those early days, the Denver post was an afternoon newspaper. And so uh, you could, you, you really weren't under the gun except on Saturday night for deadline purposes. And so I was really, uh, I, I was allowed to kind of stumble along, find my own way. And, you know, that, the, the, the issue was, was I was both being indoctrinated into the daily newspaper business and being indoctrinated in the business of covering a major league team full time at the same time. 
And so that was rather daunting, it, it, but I wasn't intimidated by, intimidated by it. And frankly, uh, I found my niche doing it, but I was allowed to, I was allowed to kind of find my own way, uh, set my own course and do it that way. And I really, really, uh, got eye opening travel, you know, and, and remember I was a kid who'd grown up as a coach's son. My dad was in the NFL for the rest of his career at that point. And, uh, he, my dad ended up going from Chicago. I mean, from Denver to Chicago, there in Lake Forest. I picked my family lived in Lake Bluff for a while, and and to Tampa Bay and back to Denver with Dan Rees. So the, the only uh, the only awkward parts of, of my reign as a Denver newspaper reporter is my own dad would have to tell me off the record, and and uh, but I, but I I was finding my way on the daily newspaper beat at the time covering the car ride. Well, I guess the other side of that though would be trying to fight for, for space, right. To get your stories in, you know, and not be the last <laughs> thing, in, right. Cause I'm sure you're some great stories and some great things sort of percolating there. The NHL yeah. beat generally, but the team specifically. And I, were there any sort of, I mean, did you find yourself having to defend yourself or fight with the, the beat, the, 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 the deputy editor or the sports guy to, to kind of get more lineage for yourself? Oh, editors and I always got along real well. I said that tongue in cheek. Um, <laughs> I was—I'm a former journalist. You know, so I, I, I think I, I could—I could discern some of that sarcasm coming through. Okay, I, I actually have been asked that question a lot about kind of where the, and we even discussed here a little bit about the Rockies hierarchy. But I have to say, I, thinking back and even thinking at the time that it was never a problem for lack of space or lack of play. Or uh, or being told to to cool my jets or don't be writing this or don't be writing that or we don't have space for this we don't have space for that. I for the most part in that in the era of that there was a Denver newspaper war going on and anything you could do to make your paper kind of step ahead of the competition the Rocky Mountain News and to uh, and to carve out a niche that way was welcomed and so I have to say uh, there had been some discussion I've heard it over the years of. Of, well, one of the problems with the with the Rockies was they didn't get the massive coverage. But I have to kind of both out of a sense of self-defense, but also out of a, a defense of the newspaper industry at that time. Both papers covered the Rockies extremely well, especially considering uh, their lack of success over the years. And, and I don't even think that entered into it. And, and in the perspective of many years later, looking back, it may be, it may be tempting to draw that inference and draw that conclusion that they didn't get the coverage uh, that a major league team deserved. And I have to say, no, that's just not true. That that they did, that was not part of the problem. And part of it was we had a lot of space. We had a lot of uh, resources in those years. And, and it really wasn't a matter of, of deciding whether to travel on the trip to Montreal or Toronto. You went. And so it really wasn't a problem. Yeah, you, you young whippersnappers out there don't rec- recognize that, uh, you know, the late 70s, early 80s. I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't call it the heyday necessarily of of, of newspaper and, and sports writing and journalism and whatnot. I think there are many years of where that is. But, you know, having it seems like a, an ancient sort of artifact, right, to even talk about, well, maybe a newspaper, let alone having two uh, major dailies in a metropolitan area fighting it out. I mean, I want to say halcyon days, but yes, resources. I think that's the better word, right? To be, you're traveling with the team. You're going around yeah. uh, other locations <laughs> around the league. You're, you're covering this team full time and then some, and writing, you know, expansive stories on a regular basis. I mean, that's uh, almost uh, just short of a luxury these days. It seems. 
Well, I don't want to get too wistful on people, but when I worked at the Rocky Mountain News in college, it was at the very end of the hot type days. Do you remember hot type? Silver trays of type? And, yes, and I, I, I heard of it, but uh, yeah, I, oh, I, I just remember doing oh, galleys in the oh, school yeah, newspaper, right? right? Okay. So, so that's at least yeah. something. And, uh, you, and uh, when I walked into the Denver Post, I can remember the very first picture I had worked for, I had worked for three years at the Rocky Mountain News in college, so I wasn't completely naive. When I walked into the newsroom at the Denver Post full time, uh, four days after graduating from college, uh, first sight I saw was a, was a veteran reporter, Frank Haraway, wearing one of those visors. Remember those visors, kind of plastic visors? Sure, kid. And of uh, typing on a typewriter with carbon paper and, uh, and smoke throughout the room. And it changed very quickly. We entered the computer age right after that. But I, I'm very, very happy that I got a taste of those kind of front page uh, allusion to movie that there that nobody listening gets. Uh, remember Walter Matthau? <laughs> well, whatever. Uh, I was exposed to that front page era, and I was very, very proud to be a part of it. Uh, in the transition to the computer age, but uh, the travel, the the actual mechanics of covering the hockey team and traveling with major league teams at the time was different. You traveled with the team. The team had the plane tickets, handed you your plane ticket, and you always sat in the smoking section. I remember that. And traveled with the team, rode the bus with the, to the hotel, and they billed the team for all of it. So they, you were not ethically compromised at all. But uh, you you traveled with the team. And the one thing I can say tell young reporters now that they really miss out on is getting to know the players, getting to be around everybody. I, I have friends from that, from that era to this day from actually having traveled with the team and been a part of it. And you're not a part of the team, but you're on the periphery and it's enjoyable. And I really enjoyed it when I did it with the Nuggets after the Rockies left, I was switched to the Nuggets beat and very much enjoyed that too. And that's, but you, you wrote on, you know, I was on a PM cycle for much of it, meaning the, I could like file the next morning. I was traveling with the team. It was just a very, very enjoyable experience and one that I still treasure to this day. Yeah, you know, our, our pal John Sterling was on a, on this uh, this show a year plus ago, Yankee broadcaster, great, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, ABA guy and WHA guy and stuff. He, he sort of recounted, you know, his, some of his Nets days, for example. I mean, he, he almost felt like an extended member of the team, which mm-hmm. I think kind of, if I remember— you were conversation correctly kind of cut both ways i mean there's a bit of a familial feel right i mean you get to know the the players and you're kind of a sort of part of the mix but i gotta think though on some level that that could also make perhaps some uncomfortableness maybe not as a play-by-play broadcaster as much as a reporter when say something a little i don't know harder to kind of write or convey or, or whatever pops up versus a feature piece yeah, there was that sense of every once in a while somebody would look at you and you say, "Did you really say that about me?" And yeah, you'd feel guilty for, for. Uh, but for the most part, honestly, uh, my experience has been, and I, I'm sure you've heard this from many people, is that, that that was less of an issue in hockey than any other sport. That they got it, they understood that that in uh, hockey people could be as critical of themselves as anybody else's. So. I don't think it was as bad as like when I covered basketball or, or as I've heard covering baseball where the pressure to be part of the team is, is more preeminent. All right. Um, how about some of the players that sort of uh, come to mind, uh, some of the characters uh, that were part of all this? We'll get into Don Cherry in a minute, but um, 
any particular players or names, either people, you know, uh, well remembered, uh, like a like a Wilf Paymont or or a, a Chico Resch, perhaps, or maybe even not so. Um, just folks that immediately pop to mind. Now we're only talking about a six year period of time, and you were only covering well, a portion of it. But any any names or people or or personalities that uh, just pop to mind that uh, are hard to forget. For better or for worse, Will Pay- Will Paymont was their original star. He came from the Kansas City franchise, came with Kansas City franchise to Denver, was their first star. And his father was uh, his father wrestled bears in carnivals, and Wolf was cut from the same cloth, and uh, was involved in a very very controversial issue when he high sticked uh, Dennis Plonich to the face, uh, was suspended, ended up having to reach a settlement out of court for it. Uh, and I remember having to cover that. It was a very, very uh, splashy incident, one that, that would be different today because there was no video. Can you imagine something happening in a hockey game that, that warranted suspension and uh, and all of that, yet there was no video of it? Can you think that could happen today? But it, but it did. Nobody could see it. It was everybody taking each other's word for what happened behind the play. It was behind the play. But Wolf came out was the original best player for the Colorado Rockies. And he, but he ended up being traded. Uh, and, and then the next player that I remember uh, was Barry Beck, who in, in my mind would have been one of the prime great defensemen in the game had he not been injured after he was sent to the uh, Rockies, I mean, sent to the Rangers in the major six-player trade early in the Don Cherry era. He was going to be a terrific defenseman and, and was terrific in his, in his days with the Rockies but they realized that they needed uh, some bodies to, to actually score some goals. And so Cherry acquiesced and even pushed forward the trade of Barry Beck to the Rangers. Those are the original two players that stood out to me. And then, uh, well, Paymont was traded, though, to Toronto for Lanny McDonald. And Lanny McDonald, and this is the way hockey worked in those days, uh, was rocking the boat in Toronto, and he was not getting along with owner, with owner Harold Ballard, who was an irascible sort who would – would answer his own phone in the offices and be drunk when he answered the phone. And even a young beat writer from Denver, Colorado could call him and talk hockey with him. Uh, and he ended up trading Lanny McDonald because he was rocking the boat, wanted more money, uh, was not enjoying himself in Toronto, did not like Harold Ballard. And so Harold Ballard's idea was to get him, trade him to Siberia. He was going to get to get him to the worst situation in hockey. So they traded him to the Colorado Rockies uh, for uh, Wolf Paymont and, uh, and, uh, the, the throw-in in that trade, I don't know if you, I don't know what, if you know what happened to this guy. The throw-in, because Landon McDonald came from Toronto to uh, the Carter Rockies with, you know? Hmm. Don't know. Joel Quenville. I was just going to get, you know, I was actually going to guess Joel Quenville, who, to be honest with you, is probably maybe of, so I, where I was going to go with that was that Landon McDonald, 10 years later, or 82 or, or 92 uh, the only member, I guess, of the uh, Rockies uh, to uh, be inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. I, as a coach, you wonder if Kenville's going to actually be in the Hall of Fame yeah. too and join him, right? Yeah. So he he jokes he joked with all the players that shut up. That Terry actually covered me when I was a kid and and remembers that that Lanny McDonald was a throw-in in that trade when I when I came to the Rockies. He joked about that, of course. Uh, and that was the one. And the other thing as they went through the ups and downs and I, I still remember, and I think this was kind of the death knell of the franchise. Uh, I think, uh, you know, the, the Barry Beck trade had so many offshoots. It was impossible to track one, years later. You know how those kind of trades work out where if you, uh, 
if you uh, tr try to work all the offshoots, you end up so far off track, it's impossible to actually track what happens. So it's hard to say that the landing of Donald Berry back trades were bad because they involved each other, for for example. But I also remember when uh, when later in the uh, stay of the Rockies, when they traded Lanny McDonald to Calgary. And I don't know if you've heard the story, but I, I was on the trip. And uh, when Lanny McDonald was told in the Winnipeg airport that he had been traded and he, he was actually he actually was broken up. Like Barry Beck, he cried. He, he didn't he, he really liked playing for the Rockies. He and his wife loved living in Denver. And he went onto the bus at the Winnipeg airport, and I'm going to wait with him and ride to the Winnipeg uh, arena to get his equipment and do an interview. And so I'm waiting for him. He was on the bus, and he was he was very cheerful and talking to the players on the bus. And one of his teammates, Rob Ramage, defenseman Rob Ramage, who was one of the, the baby bulls from the WHA who transferred, who was, was drafted into uh, the NHL after the merger, told Lanny, he said, Lanny, shut up. This is going to be the best thing that ever happened to you. And uh, it actually was. Uh, he ended up, of course, winning the Stanley Cup in Calgary and being a superstar there, Hall of Fame player. Uh, but that was th those. That's the other trade I remember: one for Lanny McDonald and one sending Lanny McDonald uh, to Calgary. And that that was part of the fits and spurts and false starts and screw ups uh, that made Rocky hockey, Rocky hockey, really Rocky hockey. All right, what's this? NordVPN. Fantastic. Uh, friends, you know, uh, the uh, the world of the Internet gets uh, crazier and uh, and less secure by the day, it seems. And privacy is a huge issue uh, when you're traveling, uh, perhaps even using Wi-Fi, right? You never quite really feel comfortable in knowing that, you know, your, uh, your Internet connection is secure, uh, that you're not being tracked, uh, that your data, frankly, is not being uh, accessed and uh, uh, unwittingly uh, pilfered and used for other... Uh, other purposes that uh, you don't want it to be used for. And that's where virtual pri private networks, he says, comes in very handy. And the best out there of late uh, is our friends at NordVPN. That's N-O-R-D V-P-N. Let's say you want to, let's you're traveling and um, you want to access uh, a streaming service when you're uh, in another country. Uh, this is a great uh, way, a virtual private network, to to access those, uh, those services without sort of being uh, bumped out because uh, your computer device thinks that uh, you're living in another country. If you use Wi-Fi, public Wi-Fi at that, on a regular basis, you know how dicey that proposition can be. It's convenient, sure, but when you're sitting in a, a lobby of a hotel or a Starbucks, you know, uh, you think it's secure, but uh, are you really sure? Encrypting your data, very important when you're sending a, a, an important file, let's say a tax form to your accountant. Um and uh, file sharing, uh, you've got a, a project that uh, you're trying to share with your team uh, and, uh, you know, even in a Slack environment or whatever, those things can get uh, easily uh, sidetracked and or uh, intercepted without the benefits of a virtual private network. And again, NordVPN is the best that I found out there. And I can't uh, tell you how not only important a VPN is, but how probably the best that I've seen. Uh, to date is our friends at NordVPN. And of course, I wouldn't be telling you about all this unless we had a special offer for it. Of course we do. Uh, it's a special holiday deal for every purchase of a two-year plan, and it's relatively uh, well-priced. I, I think you'll find it uh, itself a good deal. You'll get four additional months for free. 
when you go to nordvpn.com slash good seats. That's Nord, N-O-R-D, V as in Victor, P-N.com, nordvpn.com slash good seats. And don't forget to use the coupon code good seats at checkout. And again, you're going to get four additional months for free when you purchase a two year plan. NordVPN. It's the best that I found out there in the worlds of virtual private networks. Check them out. NordVPN. Thank you for your support of the show. And now back to said show. Well, besides, I mean, obviously the team really was fair to Midland, right? And that's being generous, frankly, if you look at the cross of the six years. But I mean, they were always competitive. Yeah, I was going to say, were they fun to watch it? They they were, they were, yeah, they weren't so rotten that you you can waste a lot of disdain on them. They were very competitive. They were good guys. uh, And and they always showed up. And it was just one of those things where they just weren't good enough. All right. Well, then explain to me, and maybe this sort of kind of sets us uh, uh, sort of for the denouement uh, eventually. I, I, I get the sense that even in the first couple of years, it, their uh, long-term, uh, I don't know, rooting in Denver was not guaranteed. Because I think it looks no. like as early as 78, like this, that second season. Oh, there were talks, yeah. Yeah. So uh, give me a little sense of that, because the management uh, uh, musical chairs was somewhat always looming, it seemed, and, and it never really seemed like they were going to yeah, it was a foregone conclusion they were going to stick around. Well, the, the, the other reason they say it was a great training ground for me was because of the news element. You know, I, I mentioned the major least, uh, least survey story that I did, but there was always something like that. I mean, there was a, there was some talk uh, when they were going to sell the team. Uh, I don't. Is the statute of limitations run out? Can I uh, can I get you sued, or is, is it okay? I think you'll be just fine, and I'll take the chance. Okay. Well, I. There was a guy in uh, St. Louis who was a, in the reinsurance business, uh, and he claimed he was going to be the savior of the Rockies. And I got a tip about a uh, oh, he was going to buy the Rockies. He was going to be the savior of them. And uh, no, nah, I'm not going to say his name. I'll keep it out of it. Oh, come People on. Breaking news for a story from 40 years ago? Come on. Go uh, for it. No, that's okay. Well, he, he – so – there's this big celebration because Robert Hutchings is going to buy the team. I said his name once. Okay. And uh, everybody's talking about it. And I get a call from somebody and I know who it is. I knew who it was later. Uh, I get a call in one of those great anonymous tips in those ages. You know, they didn't get texted to you. They could actually like pick up a phone and call you and tell you something. I said, Hey, you really need to check this guy out. And so I checked it out and we ended up running a picture of, a, of checks. He had have checks that had bounced. And uh, questioning the actual wherewithal of them being able to own a franchise in the National Hockey League. And so the sale kind of got scuttled because they figured out, we can't go through this again. We can't have somebody in the ownership who's really not financially capable of owning and running a franchise. And so there was always something like that. There were always rumors uh, of uh, people buying a franchise, whether a Canadian furniture entrepreneur who was was actually uh, very bona fide, but ended up just not buying the team. There was always the rumors that somebody was going to buy the team, and they ended up ended up with somebody. Let's see, what they, about four owners, uh, and and, uh, and making it through that way until the until the team was moved into Jersey. But there was always yeah, there was, were always why was I was yeah, why was Vic, why was stories. yeah I'm sorry. So why was Vickers so quick in the in like almost two years, just quickly two years 
already looking either to move or to sell, and then Imperatory coming into the mix. I mean, so well, bluntly, what happened in was, what, in my opinion, what happened with with Jack Rickers, who was a respected man in the Colorado market. He realized he'd been sold completely sold the bill of goods by the National Hockey League and the league management and other people involved in the league and realized, hey, you know, this is going to be a real long haul to get this going. And he didn't have, he was very, very wealthy, but he was, he was not of the, of the ilk that we picture now as being, uh, uh, being deep pocketed owners. And so I think he just, he was just a little betrayed because he, he had been told by people in Colorado, for example, that boy, you know, you, you just open the oh, turn on the beer taps and you're going to make money. And that was kind of the attitude of the national hockey league at the time too. uh, to backtrack a little bit. When I took over the NHL beat, uh, we had a columnist named Steve Cameron who had been in the national hockey league, uh, working for a team very briefly. And then uh, got back into the newspaper business. He says, Terry, you're going to find one thing out about the NHL. These are people who love to wear tuxedos, to league functions, and throw up on them by the end of the night. And that's the NHL of that era. And that, that's, uh, that was the NHL I was covering. That was the NHL that Jack Vickers got into and found he just wasn't a good fit. So uh, when he sold to Arthur Imperatore, right, it was uh, a Jersey guy. Um, yeah. Was it implied or explicit or somewhere in between that New Jersey was – a legitimate place for this team to ultimately move because of it and him. I think you've read what I wrote about it. And a lot of people have read what I've written about it, both in my book, playing piano in a brothel and on my website and everywhere else. And, and so no, yeah, it could really couldn't have been that way. I said, no, it was Arthur Imperator was a, was a ranger season ticket holder and his, uh, who, who was involved in, in several, uh, mainly the trucking business in New Jersey, but several other entrepreneurial ventures. And the stepson was was a brilliant man who was uh, who was involved with his ventures too. And they were hockey fans, literally hockey fans. I mean, they just decided they wanted to own a hockey team and bring it to New Jersey. And Jack Vickers and other people uh, led him to believe that the NHL knew that Denver was they had given up on the Denver market, and he wouldn't have any trouble getting the team to New Jersey. At the time, uh, the problem was the uh, there was just uh, on the drawing board, the Meadowlands Arena and the Meadowlands Project, uh, and that that it would it wasn't immediate to be able to move it New Jersey anyway. And so, but it, Imperator bought the team, thinking actually thinking that he would eventually be able to move it to New Jersey, and he could just play in, in Denver or on an interim basis, perhaps being a second tenant at Madison Square Garden. Everybody forgets the New, the New York Americans and the Rangers shared Madison Square Garden at one time. And oh sure. Thought maybe they could and, do and so did the, by the way, the, the WHA Raiders did too for a cup of coffee. Yeah. So they thought they could maybe do that again, but they were told no, no, that that can't work. And, uh, and he, so he actually stood in the mayor's office at the news conference saying, "I'm going to own this team for a while and move to New Jersey." And it was a little more complicated than that. It would take too long to tell that story. But I remember standing, and I, I've said this. I stood. I'm a short guy. I'm five foot eight. I stood on a chair to get his attention, and I said, "Do you really think people are going to support this team on a lame duck basis like that?" And he kind of looked. He's and by the way, I later found out our Imperator was a very, very nice man. You know, I think he had to be ruthless in business and certain elements, uh, but on a personal level, he was a very, very nice man, and I came to greatly respect him, and even kept in touch with him over the years. But he was honestly taken aback by the question. 
And he was so taken aback, I realized he couldn't be faking it. He was absolutely genuine. It was like, like I was being, you know, completely unfair. And he hadn't even thought of it that way. Well, so they, they buy the team and they find out, hey, we're not going to be able to move to New Jersey. That's way down the road anyway, because they're building before they can get a, that arena built. It's not going to be feasible to move to New York on a piecemeal or on a, a co-tenant basis. And so they said, well, I guess we better try to make this into a, make this go because uh, otherwise it's just a complete financial disaster. So, and, and when I say this, people find it hard to believe. I've said a lot of things I've said noted here would people find it hard to believe, but that was Rocky hockey, but they really did try to make a go of it in Denver because it would have been a financial disaster to do otherwise. And they gained my respect because they tried, but, uh, and they, one of the, one of the things they tried was, was by, was uh, hiring Don Cherry and they tried a lot of things and uh, we'll get to the end of the story later. All right. Well, let's get let's get to Cherry in a second. But but let, let so I'm trying to get to to the bottom of the imperatory kind of thing. Where, did he naively buy this franchise, thinking that New Jersey could be an exit strategy for him? Or yes, no, not not could. It was. He really believed that that that, that would happen. He, he didn't even have any doubt about it. He and originally uh, when he bought the team, he thought he was going to end end up owning it in New Jersey. Interesting. And, and and how about the NHL in the background? Were they kind of, I don't want to call them co-conspirators, but were they kind of uh, winking and, and, no. and nodding that that could be a path for him to? No, buy no because they, they the NHL very much coveted New Jersey as an expansion market. And so they were telling, they told Arthur Imperator after the fact that, no, you're wrong. I mean, that that's not going to work. I think uh, there's a there's certain things we can forget with the passage of time, but at the time there really was thinking that, that the, the uh, Meadowlands market with, with uh, the stadium and the, uh, the racetrack and the, the arena that would be built was going to be one of the hotbeds in, in all of major league and professional sports. And that uh, you couldn't miss with a hockey team there. And there, there was the feeling that it was a very, very, uh, very, very reward. It would be a very rewarding expansion market, and the NHL wanted to preserve it as that. So they made it clear very quickly after the sale was announced that they know, hey, if you, if you think you're going to get, if you think you're moving the Rockies to New Jersey, you're wrong because we're going to sell it as an expansion market. And we were told, of course, and this is getting ahead of the story too, but we were told later that uh, uh, the, the, that Meadowlands Arena, which turned out to be Brandon Byrne Arena, would never have an empty seat or an unsold ticket for a hockey game ever that it would be the hottest market in in the NHL that's that's very interesting now having grown up in the area at that time and being a big soccer fan at the time I went to a, a, my more than my fair share of Devils games but uh to see for example two indoor teams two indoor soccer teams the New Jersey Rockets of the MISL and the Cosmos of the outdoor and in it they, both of them around 81 82 uh basically going uh, on that same logic and largely killing each other <laughs> and the sport and its success. Yeah, I, it, it, I, you don't want to call it a, a white elephant per se because the Nets had long uh, deserved uh, their own uh, uh, yeah, place to you know call their, uh, their own after having their own peripatetic um, life in and around the New Jersey, New York metropolitan area. Um, but yeah, I think there was absolutely a heady belief that this was going to be the Mecca 
uh, in the marsh out there in Meadowlands. And it really, mm-hmm. the indoor arena at least, didn't really turn out that way at all. Yeah, no, not at all. And I know that a lot of people are probably saying, well, he's screwing up the story because they ended up going to New Jersey anyway. But that was not the plan at the time. That ended up uh, through rather complicated machinations later. Uh, but, but the Imperator wanted to get them to New Jersey, and it just was not going to happen. Okay, so we'll get to that in one second. But before we do that, let us let's see, let's indeed talk about Don Cherry because it seems like this was sort of the uh, maybe the uh, piece de resistance, I guess, or the last sort of shot, I guess, to make this work in Denver. If I'm going to have to stick around, um, maybe a little quickie on uh, on Don Cherry, his uh, reputation. I think most people today recognize him as the bombastic and often controversial. And maybe former, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the hockey yes, commentator for yes. CBC. Um, but he was a coach at the time and uh, one of uh, of pretty decent uh, pedigree with Boston prior. Um, what was it about Don Cherry that was uh, all the thing that to bring him into town and and why he was sort of going to be the answer, I guess, for this franchise to make him stand out in the market? He had been at Boston, I think, for five years and a flamboyant had the media eating out of his hand for much of the time and was successful. And, uh, but the fifth year, he has constant fights with management, constant fights with Harry Sinden, constant, constant fights with everybody involved, became a little grating. And he essentially was, was fired after his fifth year. Uh, there, was a, there was a much noted too many men on the ice penalty uh, in a playoff series, I think it was with Montreal, that, that was much cited in his exit. But I think that was mostly the, that they just – there's a marriage that uh, that had turned sour, and so Don Cherry was hired by by the Colorado Rockies, and it was a much heralded, much discussed, much trumpeted hire that he was probably the most famous coach in hockey at the time. And he 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 really was relishing the challenge of coming into Denver and being kind of the guy that could put hockey over the top. And uh, it was an ego thing for him, but he was making one hundred eighty thousand dollars, I think. I'm looking at the 1978 media guide. And to give you an idea, the Rockies have have 20 pictures on the front of the of, of, of the 1979-80 media guide, uh, little little thumbnail uh, pictures of of all 20 of them are of Don Cherry, and on the back is Don Cherry with his beloved blue uh, football, and so. He was he was going to be the selling point, and what they didn't realize was the coach doesn't sell tickets in hockey, really, not really. I mean, but he did have the mediating out of his hand in his year here, and he he uh, came in and, and immediately was cross purposes with general manager Ray Miron and uh, ownership, and because they didn't give him everything he wanted, uh, he was uh, terrific, terrific to cover as a beat writer. Though I mean, he always got material from him. You could you could walk in there after the game not knowing you're going to write about it and walk out having having yards of material from what he had said about well the suit he was wearing or, or talking about how bad the Rockies goaltending was he was the one one coach who would tell you how bad somebody was and and I I covered a game in Hartford with him and I still remember this to this day uh, going on with some new television network between periods uh, uh, there were two of us there from the media and they needed two guests between periods. And uh, uh, we said, well, what do you get? And one thing was a transistor radio. And if you went on the, the Whalers radio broadcast, if you went on with this new TV network called ESPN, you got to thank you very much and, and uh, good luck on the rest of the year. So I ended up doing the, the uh, ESPN shot with uh, 
it was George, uh, uh, George Grant between periods. And, uh, and that night they were so bad. John Cherry said our goaltending was horse bleep. And he used the word for bleep. And uh, I've tried everybody in there, but the guy in the confectionery store. So we hear from all these guys who work in confectionery stores saying, give them a shot as being a goaltender for the Rockies. And there was the whole year was like that. Just stuff like when they went into Boston and I, I've only covered one game in my entire career where I've wondered later whether the fix was in. And the Rockies were terrible. They were coached by Don Cherry. They went into Boston, and the Bruins were still good, coached by Fred Creighton. And uh, in the last minute, the Rockies were ahead. I think it was 4-2. to two. Gilles Jobert goes to the bench, uh, and they call a timeout. I can't remember who called the timeout. But Don Cherry used the entire timeout to sign autographs for the fans around the Bruins bench. It was one of the funniest things I've ever seen in sports. Maybe you had to have been there, but that, that was the way the year went. It was just a lot of fun. He was a lot of fun to cover. Uh, and, you know, he, his acerbic manner has become uh, funny in later years. But at that time, he, he, was, uh, he, he wasn't a very complicated coach. I mean, he, the Douglas Chase style was, was stultifying in some ways, but, he, but he, was, he got them a lot of attention, but he ended up only lasting one year. That uh, Rocky's yearbook that you're uh, you're mentioning is uh, available for a good thirty six bucks now on on eBay. So <laughs> it's still it's got some uh, some value to it, and the and the, the pictures of him are 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 uh, you could see the, uh, the uh, how how good copy he would be. Come to the fights and watch. Oh, he, he would. Yeah. I have I have to tell you one thing. He yeah. would call me at home. I, he would call me at home. He knew the deadlines. He would call me at home and say, "I thought of something better to say than I said after practice." That's never happened to me as a beat writer again. That's gold, right? You got to, yeah. you got to, you got to, you got to lock onto that and not let go, right? When you're a beat writer like that, come for the yeah, fight. Yeah, go, come for the fights yeah. and watch a Rockies game break out. Did, was he behind that, yeah. or was that just something that somehow stuck around that time, or am I just? Well, part stuff? of it was I don't know if you remember this. A uh, couple of a couple of things happened that year. Number one was the year the famous stick fight between Bobby Schmatz and. Uh, Paul Stewart, who later became, ironically, an NHL referee, where uh, they high-sticked each other, drew penalties and game misconducts, and ended up getting in a stick fight in the hallway uh, during the game. And uh, everybody figured out what was going on, and the, the benches in McNichols uh, were across from the gate, so you had to skate across the ice to get to the door to go to the locker room. And everybody raced off the ice during the game because they figured out that Paul Stewart and Bobby Schmatz are going to be in a stick fight. And there's still, I still have a picture of that fight going on in the hallway with Lanny McDonald standing there helping to break it up. And the irony of him, Paul Stewart, becoming an NHL referee was just too much in some, in some instances. That would happen. Billy Smith scored a goal for the Islanders uh, that season because Rob Ramage fired it into the empty net. It was the very first goal for an NHL player, uh, NHL goaltender. And, and that was a PM paper at the time. And, uh, uh, I called, I called Billy Smith in his hotel room. And I think, you know, enough about Billy Smith to know that he might've had, oh, like a beer or two after the game before I got him. Well, <laughs> okay. he was, no, he, yeah, sure. He, and he said, he said, you know, in 40 years, I'm going to be telling my grandkids that it was a wicked wrister for, you know, wicked, wicked wrister for a mandan or something like that. And it was uh, Rob Ramage putting the puck in the on that. And they also played uh, that year. They also played at Atlanta uh, 
at Atlanta against the Flames with uh, Jim Craig in goal in his first game for the for the NHL uh, franchise in Atlanta, and he was going to hopefully be the guy who saved the franchise for Atlanta too. And the Rockies, I think, got like I, I'm going to make this up. I don't remember. They probably had about 11 shots, and the first one was like two minutes left in the first period, so they didn't even make Jim Craig break up a sweat as he was working as he was directing the American flag after the game and doing media. And so, you know, Don Cherry was part of all that. And it was a very, very, I have to admit, it was a very, very entertaining year, although they were terrible. Well, uh, he, he certainly didn't quit, right? He was, he was canned, right? Uh, at the end of the season. Yeah. And it took about, I, I, I want to say a month for the dust to settle. And they were based on what, what the deal was. They were kind of waiting for Cherry to kind of say, you know, I really want to stay, you know, let, let's try to, to make this a better marriage and, and I'll stop fighting you on everything and let's get a coherent, coherent plan and try to get better. And I think they just realized that it just wasn't going to work. So he was fired after about a month in the off season. And it was, it was more of a, I mean, he wanted to stay, but it, it didn't break his heart because he understood that uh, it w- wasn't a very good marriage. And, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was funny because the thought was we've seen coaches do this, you know, not everybody is like Bill Cowher, uh, but who got out and stayed out. The, the thinking was that Don Cherry was going to do some broadcasting. He did some broadcasting in the playoffs that year and then ended up going to, starting the next season in broadcasting. And the thought for the most part was going to be that he was going to get back into coaching, but he never did. I mean, he really found his niche in the coach's corner aspect of the Hockey Night in Canada broadcast, and uh, so getting fired by the Rockies was probably a good thing for him. Yeah, I, I think if uh, I, there's some video floating around of him sort of reminiscing about, I think, his last game or what he thought was going to be his last game, I guess it was in a snowstorm in Denver. It was like 20,000 <laughs> people there, which is a larger crowd than normal, and uh, they, um, they won the game, and, and he was it almost like he went out sort of on like a swan song almost. Well, I think what happened, the other thing that happened there is that that's one of those stories that gets better every time you hear it. Uh, I think I think now the last time I heard there were 416,000 people at that game. There you go. Uh, it, it, it was a snowstorm. There, it was a decent crowd, but it wasn't, it wasn't huge. It wasn't uh, as big as kind of the story became in retrospect. But there's no question. He was popular. He's very popular. Uh, they didn't like the... They, did, they drew 9,700 for a game that year. Uh, I'm looking this up real quick. And I'm trying to remember the last game. Uh, it was against Calgary, and uh, and uh, Chico Resch went off the ice crying. I remember that because he really liked it here, too. Uh, the, the crowd that night was 11,610. Uh, so it was not a full house, but it, it was, and they were chanting Cherry at the end. He was very popular, but uh, they needed to get good to sell tickets. And then, and that was going to be a long road to hope. All right. Well, let me uh, let's round the corner then and sort of talk about sort of the the end of it. Now, were you still beat writing for this team exclusively, or were you kind of on to other things at this point? Yes. Okay. Well, then I'm, by then I'm in my mid twenties and uh, mid just converging on the, the late twenties. I did, I was writing other things too in the off season. It was not a year completely year round assignment, but uh, when when the Rockies they had been sold from Imperator to Peter Gilbert. Uh, and Peter Gilbert was was out of the mind of trying to get him to New Jersey too. So that last year there were just rumors and rumors and rumors of sales, and I was writing all these stories all the time from league meetings and everything else about it. And eventually, what happened was uh, Gilbert ended up selling to, to John McMullen, 
and John McMullen paid what amounted to expansion-type fees, territorial indemnity to the Rangers, Islanders, Flyers. Uh, I don't remember the capitals were involved, too. So they sort of maintained it as an expansion market uh, without making an expansion team. Uh, And so it was kind of the best of both worlds for the NHL. And I came back from the meeting at which they were uh, uh, pronounced uh, having been sold and moved to New Jersey and then to the news conference there where we were told they would never have an unsold ticket at the Benelands Arena. be the greatest market for hockey ever. I don't know what happened there. And uh, I returned to Denver, took a phone call that night, and was told to get my butt to San Diego for the NBA meetings because I was now covering the Denver Nuggets. And so I, I switched from hockey to the NBA. Had a very enjoyable time uh, covering the NBA after that. Well, that's not a bad up, not that bad upgrade. Uh, give me a sense though. Why Gilbert only owned the team for a year? What was that? Was he just like was he a caretaker? <laughs> Sorry, yeah, what, what was what was his end game? I, I you know, and, and then before going to McMullen and, and, and Jersey. Well, well, Peter Gilbert was was again because uh, I remember asking him the question and I've seen the response since. Asking the question, uh, well, how, how can you succeed if nobody else can in Denver? There has been able to, because I'm me and I can get it done. You know, there's a, there's always that abiding faith in entrepreneurs and millionaires that, that they can get it done, even when it's involved in areas with which they have not been familiar. And there's just certain that certain arrogance that's involved. And Gilbert really thought he was going to – it was similar to the story with the Imperator being a Rangers fan. He was a Buffalo Sabres fan, lived in Buffalo – he really thought he would be the man to get the franchise turned around. And he thought he th- and he initially did really think of buying the Nuggets too, becoming the kind of the sports czar, uh, uh, like Stan Kroenke now uh, of Denver, and realized you know he's he was wealthy, but he was writing. I rode with him on his private plane uh, to Winnipeg one time, for both for a story and become more familiar with him. And I really liked his wife, and it was uh, I, I actually enjoyed talking to him. There were some things in his past uh, being involved in in uh, Israel and, and everything else that, that I found fascinating and, and enjoyable to write about, at least talk to him about. And he was just a very fascinating guy. He thought, But he, again, at the time, he, he just wasn't of the deep-pocketed sort. He had taken basically a, a bankrupt cable, net, cable operation and, and was in the right place at the right time when the burgeoning cable market made, you, made that a license to print money, and that's how he became wealthy. But he was not that wealthy. It was just a simple case of, of him being in that era when when you the thought was you could be a mid-range wealthy person and be a sports owner, and we all know that that's just not possible anymore. And how do you think Imperatore took uh, the eventual move to New Jersey uh, that when McMullen bought the team? Was he sort of vindicated? Was was he behind the scenes maybe, a bit collusionary? Was he... I, you know, proven right, so to speak. Did he not care? I, I just wondered how he might have felt uh, the fact that he kind of had New Jersey in in the uh, the, the corner of his eye years before and, and didn't get to sort of see it happen. Well, it was kind of funny because I remember the date. I remember because of the setting, I was covering the NHL finals and the Devils were in it. And I, I had lunch uh, at the Waterway Pier there in uh, Weehawken. Sure, his, or, his ferry. That, yeah. was his, that was his yeah. after the fact, yeah. I had lunch with him and Armin Tolhan there, and and I basically posed that question about the team did get to New Jersey, and you know, does that bring any? And he said no, because the thing I found out was it's a lot more fun to be a hockey fan than a hockey owner, and he, you know, and I kind of laughed, but he really meant that. I think he he 
he realized uh, he, I don't think he had any angst about not being the owner of the franchise when it came to New Jersey. He was just kind of thinking naively and wide-eyed uh, in, in, the, in the process before that. That's interesting. Uh, that is very interesting, especially as a New Jersey uh, uh, born and bred uh, uh, resident myself. That's uh, in knowing what I thought I knew about sort of the franchise, how it came to be and stuff. All right. I got two last questions for you then. And you've been uh, a saint to uh, uh, stick with my uh, my incessant questioning. One more trivia based and one sort of more uh, legacy oriented. Let me start with the trivia one first. Um, there is that. Joe Crandall. What's it? No, I, I always answer every every trivia question. No, you need to Crandall. buzz in first, please. No, um, oh, the uh, the the who is Del Crandall? <laughs> the uh, the urban legend is that uh, the uh, uh, the rock and roll part one song by Gary Glitter uh, got its start uh, as a sports anthem with the Rockies. Uh, true or false? True. To your knowledge. Uh, it- it depends on whether what your definition of terms are. But Kevin O'Brien was the uh, had been hired to be the new PR director for that second season, and he had been with. I'm, I, I might be wrong on this. I'm going to take a shot. And I think this is right uh, with Muskegon in the International Hockey League, and he had used Rock and Roll Part Two. He'd gone through his old 45s to look for an anthem for uh, goal scoring there and used it there. So it did not start in pro sports with the Rockies. It started there in the International Hockey League, and Kevin uh, was hired by the Rockies and brought it with him. And that was before uh, Gary Glitter's uh, infamous infamous uh, apprehension and, and prosecution for uh, pretty despicable things. And so... But it, but it was it was the Rockies that, that got it started in professional sports. Very interesting. I, that's uh, I, and I'm wondering too if uh, yeah, that's, that's certainly Gary Glitter thing. Very you know, uh, but it's still it was it became a rock anthem I, at sports. It was almost synonymous, especially through I guess the '90s. Yeah, even right? even college bands. I mean, you, you still hear college bands playing at football games. Yeah, and I guess before we sort of get off the trivia thing too. Um, uh, I, uh, distinctly remember a few photos of, um, uh, crazy George Henderson banging yeah. his drum. Do you remember <laughs> that too? We've had him on the, yeah, he, he's, he, he's great. I'm sorry. Uh, crazy George had been involved with, I think the, the golden seals. Does that sound right? Sure. He was a Bay area fixture for sure, but then he kind of made his yeah. way around various teams or uh, for hire, so to speak over the, over the, drum the Rockies. Yeah. Yeah, he, he 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 came all over, and he was very prominent with the Rockies. He did some commercials for them, and uh, uh, he he was uh, a visible element in their marketing, no question. All right, here here's the last question, and um, this goes down to legacy. Now, this is just the silly little exploit. Uh, the show that we do is, you know, we we're, we're always interested and intrigued by sort of like where team history kind of lives and lives on, right? And you know, for the a, a, a franchise like the former Rockies, right? There, there are arguably a number of different places where this six-year, you know, time capsule uh, might legitimately live. Now, certainly, the the NHL would say, well, of course, it's the it's the with the Devils, right? Because that's where the lineage goes, and same for the scouts that preceded them. But you know, I, I would imagine Denver hockey fans would say, well, you know, the spirit of NHL hockey for sure should stick with with the Avs when they came into town in the in the 90s. Um, but some would maybe argue that, you know what, this is just a period of time 
and it was sort of a, a, in its own little sort of shrink wrap bubble and maybe doesn't really live anywhere. What do you think, having covered the team for most of its life, where do you think, you know, any of those logos and the memories and, and any of the throwbacks and any of that kind of stuff might live should anyone care? Uh, we do, for what it's worth. Where I will get on the NHL is is a refusal to set a uniform policy for the way franchises treat their history. And, you know, that, that's arguable that maybe that should that decision should be up to the teams themselves. But if you look at the Devils Media Guide and the Devils website and anything else tied to the franchise itself, it's as if the franchise started when they moved to New Jersey. Uh, there are no references to the Rockies that I know of. Uh, there are no references to the Kansas City Scouts. It's just that the it's uh, that the that the Devils were a new team and started, and that that was the start of the franchise. And so you're talking everything from individual player records to team accomplishments. The Rockies and the Scouts don't exist, uh, which I sort of offends me. And the interesting. Uh, contrast is the way the Colorado Avalanche treats the Quebec Nordiques. They treat them as you look through the media guide and retired numbers and, or, and, and, and everything else. I could be wrong on that. But, but they treat the Quebec Nordiques as part of the honored part of their uh, heritage, and they're even having the throwback jerseys for them uh, this year. And uh, you, you go back through the story history of the Nordiques of Peter Stastny and, and uh a lot of other great players and uh, even the great players that played for the Nordiques, they they honor that part of their heritage. And I really believe that there should be some kind of uniform policy for that. So here in Denver, it's kind of an interesting argument between there is a, there is a uh, hardcore that really does either firsthand remember the Rockies or cared enough to try to research them and learn about them. And, and the Rockies are kind of part of that overall hockey heritage and history in Colorado that very few acknowledge when Colorado had all the, the minor league teams over the years, the WHA, the, the prominent program at the University of Denver and Colorado College. And so to say that the hockey began when the Avalanche moved here or even when the Rockies moved here is just flat out incorrect. It's all part of the hockey heritage. And to those people, that will be the Rockies. That's always going to be the Rockies. And the Rockies should be the throwback jerseys. Uh, the Devils don't even acknowledge that the Rockies exist. So it's kind of an interesting argument and debate that's ongoing. And uh, I I would say that there's a little bit of both camps involved here, that the team involved, the team very much acknowledges its Quebec Nordiques history, and the fans very much acknowledge the Colorado Rockies roots. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and I wonder, you know, especially given how big business and truly big business sports has become, especially when it comes to merchandise and logos and all that stuff, right? Um you know, I we've seen it with the Hartford Whalers and uh, and uh, the Carolina Hurricanes, right? Who've just all of, you know. Oh, well, there you've done it. Now I'm going to hear. Now I'm going to hear brass bonanza for the. Well, rest yeah, of the night. sure, okay. Well, we've and we've had the Whaler guys on uh, a previous episode. You know, hoping that someday Hartford will get their team back. I'm not sure that's going to happen, but it's also interesting to see how convenient the last couple of years with the new Hurricanes ownership about how warmly embracing they are of the heritage and the logo and the merchandising of such of Hartford in that mixture when for years it was to your point almost New Jersey Devils-esque in its non you know uh, uh, understanding it or uh, a belief that there was anything prior to right so I you know I wherever there's money there's trouble right and you wonder 
this is you know this is out there it's it's got some value uh, it's you wonder what I'd be NHL we'll see right uh, you know I bet well in, in this, for you in, in this time in this process it's kind of hard to chart things but uh, the last I knew they were selling Colorado Rockies jerseys in the uh, Pepsi Center now it's the Ball Arena uh, gift shop and so they were so they were taking advantage of the Rockies heritage there uh, but their throwback jerseys are going to be involved or they are going to be homage to the Northeast this year. So that, I think the team and the, the K Cronky Sports Enterprises leadership is kind of tr- wants to have it both ways there. But I at least acknowledge that they give the fans a choice. If they want to buy a Rockies jersey and and wear uh, wear a Barry Back or a Wolf Paymont to personalized jersey to the game, so you could, they can do that. And you see that every once in a while, and it is kind of fun. All righty now. Thanks to Terry. Fantastic conversation. I learned a lot, and I'm just finally uh, happy to get into a story of the Colorado Rockies, one that uh, has been on our uh, our ever growing list to to finally tackle. And we appreciate the excuse for doing so with Terry. And um, let's promote some good stuff from uh, from Terry. Lord knows he's got a ton of writings out there for you to uh, delve into and enjoy, like we have started to do so ourselves. Uh, the book that uh, this story came from and, and many other great Denver sports memories uh, is Playing Piano in a Brothel. Uh, that book is uh, available. It's uh, basically his uh, his journeys as a sports writer in Denver. And uh, this is but one of uh, many, many stories uh, to, to enjoy. How about 77? Uh, Denver, the Broncos and the coming of age. They break out uh, season of the NFL Broncos. Uh, great book. We highly recommend Third Down and a War to Go, uh, a, uh, a tremendous memoir and story, frankly, of uh, Terry's father uh, as uh, a player on the wartime uh, University of Wisconsin football team and all of his teammates. Uh, a fantastic story and hopefully perhaps a, a screenplay to come at a theater near you someday. Uh, how about Horns, Hogs, and Nixon coming? Yeah, it's the story of Texas and Arkansas in college football in what uh, Terry describes as Dixie's last stand. Uh, that's a, a very uh, intriguing book. Uh, some some novels, some historically uh, accurate novels that uh, that Terry has written, too. The Witch's Season being one of them. Olympic Affair, uh, which is sort of a, a Nazi-tinged World War II uh, historical novel that uh, has a, a ton of uh, Olympics and uh, other sports intrigue tied into it too and back into the realm of nonfiction, uh march 1939 uh what uh, is subtitled is before the madness uh, which essentially is the uh, story of the real uh first final four of the ncaa basketball tournament uh back when the uh, university of oregon won the whole thing for the uh proverbial first time uh all those and more can be found uh on uh, terry's website again at terryfry.com t-e-r-r-y F-R-E-I, TerryFry.com. And you can follow Terry on Twitter at T-Fry, at T-F-R-E-I, at T-Fry. Let's see. You can follow us on Twitter. Why don't you do that, too, if you're uh, subscribing to various uh, follows there? Uh, We're at Good Seats Still. Uh, You'll find us also, by the way, on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. And you'll find us on Facebook, too. There's a little page devoted to us there. I uh, can't remember any of that. We'll just go to our website, for God's sakes, and bookmark that. And that's goodseatsstillavailable.com. Watch your spelling. It's goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's what you'll find. 
uh, all of our previous episodes and all the ones to come. If you somehow have missed them or forgot to subscribe to to us in your podcast feed, er, why uh, why not uh, enjoy and stream all those things? Uh, all the books, uh, not only of Terry's this week, uh, but all the books in, in various media forms uh, that various guests might have uh, brought with them uh, related to our conversations uh, can be found and uh, purchased through links uh, on the website. And of course, we'll get a little shekel or two of love from Amazon or the, whatever the sellers might be. We appreciate that. And you're doing so uh, that in that manner. Uh, if you want to send us some email, we're always welcome to hear your comments and uh, suggestions. Uh, that's uh, uh, the address, of course, is hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Almost forgot that address. Can't believe that. Uh, you want to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You can do that too. Just find the, uh, the clickable link on our website and just give us your name and email address and we'll sign you up for a little weekly blast of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, goodness, uh, giving you a hint about what's going to be on the next week's episode. And uh, by all means, please uh, not only subscribe uh, early and often to the show for your uh, various ongoing listening pleasure, but uh, by all means, uh, please rate and review the show. We appreciate that. And that helps other people like you uh, find the show, discover the show, be recommended uh, to listen to the show. We can always uh, uh, benefit from uh, some in, uh, further listenership. We always love having new people find the show and discover going down our rabbit hole of, of previous episodes. And uh, we've got so many more things uh, planned for you. We just love to keep growing that base of fans as, uh, as people like you have done. We appreciate that to no end. And uh, let's see, how about uh, giving a, a tip of thanks, of course, as always, to our great pal, Jerry Payne, down in Atlanta. Thank you, kind sir, for your editorial goodness and twiddling of the knobs this week. Uh, we could not do this show without you, that is for sure. Uh, let's see, what else? Uh, I don't think there's anything else. There will be, hopefully, another show next week. That's what else. So uh, wish us luck in that endeavor, and we wish you uh, good luck in uh, hanging there for yet another week. And um, Lord knows it's uh, ever challenging out there, but hopefully we uh, kind of distracted you for a bit this week and we look forward to doing it again next week. And let's leave you with some music, shall we? Uh, of course, we always try to do, though, we, uh, do that when we can. And uh, I can't think of a better tune to send us out uh, than the song that became the signature song for every goal and every victory scored and uh, achieved by the Colorado Rockies. Here it is. It's Gary Glitter. It's rock and roll part one. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care. See you next week.